Harvard Divinity School. Assessing Domestic U.S. Religious Politics Impact on Foreign Policy, March 4th, 2022. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of you from wherever you're joining us from around the world. It's uh, wonderful to be gathered together. My name is Susie Hayward. I am the Associate Director for uh, Religions and the Professions Initiative at Harvard Divinity School's Religion and Public Life Program. And I'm very glad to help convene us today for a discussion that's on um, U.S. domestic politics related to religion and their influence on U.S. foreign policy. So I am joined by my co-moderator, Peter Mandeville, who is a professor of international affairs at the Shar School of Public Policy at George Mason University. And we will have three others joining us shortly. Peter and I are going to give a little bit of background and context into um, what, the, what led to this conversation that we're having here today. So I'm actually going to turn it over straight to, to Peter to share a little bit about the workshop that we convened last week. Great. Thanks so much, Susie. And good afternoon to everyone joining us today. Welcome. It's, it's great to have you with us for this conversation. So the, the discussion that we'll be having this afternoon uh, follows from a, a workshop that took place last week, bringing together um, uh, about 16 of the countries and indeed the world's leading scholars whose work focuses on the intersection of religion and international affairs. This is part of a larger project called New Approaches to Engaging Religion in U.S. Foreign Policy, which has uh, been um, running over the last uh, six months or so, courtesy of generous support from the Henry Luce Foundation. The, the Luce Foundation over the last 12 years or so has been leading a, a very unique and pioneering initiative focused on the role of religion in international affairs. Um, and much of the work of that project um, has connected with and informed the way that governments and the US government in particular thinks about the role of religion in foreign policy. I think it's fair to say that that work by the Luce Foundation um, has really helped to animate and mobilize considerable interest um, in this topic. And so what we're trying to do with this work is to um, um, make some inquiries about what the next stage of that conversation might look like. As we see in the world today, more and more issues and situations in which religion seems to be a salient factor, um, how should policymakers and U.S. foreign policy more broadly think about and engage uh, with religion? Religion is not a new topic in international affairs, um, although it has followed, I think, an interesting and curious trajectory over the last couple of decades. Um, I think, generally speaking, uh, with respect to the, the academic field of international relations, the general assumption has been that uh, religion, by its nature, is something that's not particularly relevant, um, particularly if you're kind of, you know, coming at these issues from a kind of hard-nosed realpolitik perspective that's just focused on security and power. Um, you know, religion is part of the realm of culture and so it doesn't really matter. I think that began to change a bit after the end of the Cold War when we began to see more and more um, ethno-national conflicts breaking out uh, in various regions where religion seemed to be an element. Um, and I think this was really, this, this, this idea of religion as a potential source of conflict um, became incredibly prominent, obviously, in the aftermath of 9-11. All of that to say that, that I think where, when religion has entered into the minds of policymakers 
it has presented itself more as a challenge or a source of conflict or violence that needs to be dealt with. The, the, the other way in which religion has been present consistently over the last couple of decades in US foreign policy is of course through the uh, work of promoting international religious freedom around the world, um, a function that arose out of the passage of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. So for, you know, up until about 10 years ago, that idea of, uh, of religion and particularly Islam after 9-11 as a source of violence and conflict on one hand and the promotion of international religious freedom on the other hand is really the kind of full scope of the conversation about religion. A few years ago, however, we began to see a trend whereby diplomats became more and more interested in the idea that there may be a broader story to tell about religion um, and even the possibility of learning about and becoming more aware of how engagement with religious actors uh, can help to create mutual partnerships to advance uh, humanitarian issues, development challenges, uh, the protection of refugees, um, even up to and, and including efforts to combat climate change and protect the, the natural environment. And so what we're trying to do with this e initiative is to ask what the next stage of that conversation might look like as we try to bring into the agenda of the conversation a set of issues that we feel are highly salient, but which have not necessarily always been very directly connected to uh, the, the, the issue set. And so Susie, can I hand back to you to maybe give our audience a sense of some of the flavors that came out of the workshop that we held last week? Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Peter. Um, so this workshop that was convened is part of a, it's part of a larger gathering that's gonna be several workshops. And we were eager to support this first one as religion and public life at the Divinity School because um, precisely what we're trying to do in RPL, which is to support the public understanding of religion for the purpose of just peace. And we do that with working with HDS students who are preparing for careers in public service and policy among other professions and working with policymakers who are seeking to strengthen their own religious literacy in order to facilitate their work in advancing justice and, and human rights. So this question and set of questions that are at the heart of the, the gathering last week are very critical to what we're trying to do in religion and public life, which is to, to think really critically about um, how religion is discussed, how religion is understood, the assumptions that underlie that, and um, how policymakers in, can be in conversation with religious studies scholars to try to ensure that they are better able to um, think about religion in constructive ways, potentially engage with actors and institutions that we define as religious or other dimensions of religion in efforts to advance justice. The, the topic of the, the politics of religion in the U.S. domestic context and its influence in foreign policy has produced some really important critical scholarship in recent decades, some of it funded by the Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And it's also spurred a fulsome set of conversations among activists and practitioners and policymakers and scholars, including those of religion. So we were drawing on this um, this rich history of this conversation as it's taken place over two decades, some of which Peter referred to, um, on specifically this intersection of, of domestic politics related to religion and, and U.S. foreign policy. The conversation in the past has tended to focus on the role of specific 
U.S. religious communities and their advocacy priorities that have shaped U.S. foreign policy priorities. So including those related to religious freedom, to militarism, to policies toward Israel-Palestine, to humanitarian responses, and, and so on. Um, and these are, of course, uh, topics that span the political and religious uh, spectrum, with perhaps more particular focus in the past anyway on the influence of white evangelical Christian influences and priorities on foreign policy. Critical scholarship in religious studies has shed light on the ways in which a dominant conceptions of and about religion in U.S. foreign policy have been problematic, sometimes showing preference for certain religious traditions or certain understandings of religion that emphasize um, one tradition over another or kinds of traditions over another. So just by way of illustration, there has been um, some great scholarship recently that has pointed to the fact that often indigenous spiritualities and religious worldviews haven't been um, sufficiently brought into the conversation of religious freedom protection for a number of reasons, both about how we define religion in, these in this policy making, as well as what, what the priorities are, who is prioritized in US foreign policy um, making and domestic political policy making. So in bringing together this group that we brought together last week at this time, we wanted to review some of the conversations of the past and the current new directions as Peter was speaking to. And so as such, we focus on a couple of things. One, the categorization and conceptions of religion that have tended to, to be centered in these conversations. Um, and that has looked a lot in the past of conversations about good re religion versus bad religion, good religious ideas versus bad religious ideas, and how these binaries have tended to shape um, both the conversations about how religion is showing up, but also then the policymaking responses, um, essentially coming down to how can we support good religious actors in order to offset bad religious actors in ways that have sometimes led to um, problematic policy results. Um, secondly, a focus on institutionalized forms of religion primarily. So looking at formal religious clerics, formal religious institutions or faith-based organizations in ways that have detracted us from um, looking at forms of religious symbolism, forms of religious practice, um, other dimensions of religions that are often a part of movement making um, in, in ways, movement making in ways that have supported both um, pro-social actions and anti-social actions and responses and behaviors. So a key theme of our discussion was about ensuring the ways religion is categorized and then engaged as a part of US foreign policy making does not entrench some of these particular conceptions of religion that are limited or that are problematic. Um, and also in a way that does not um, further entrench US religious politics that are of course incredibly polarized and increasingly so, um, or that are, have, have been um, historically very racialized um, and, and problematic in that way so that we're not um, exporting some of the racial, racial injustice and, and other forms of injustices that manifest in the US through our foreign policy making related to religion overseas. Um, it was noted that what is often considered the religious position or religious political movements in the US tend not to reflect the much more complex reality of how religion and spirituality shapes 
movements in the U.S. and overseas related to justice, environmentalism, etc., including some of the transnational connections between justice movements in the U.S. and overseas. Um, secondly, we talked about the current moment we're living through because we are seeing just tectonic shifts in social, political, and economic spaces and movements um, in the US and across the globe. And so we wanted to think about the ways in which these crises that we're going through or great shifts that we're going through are simultaneously opportunities for us to think about um, and engage where appropriate questions about religion and dimensions of religion in new ways and potentially more productive ways. So to that end, for example, we talked in the US context about um, the murder of George Floyd and the ways in which that brought into the center conversations that had long been going on that were critical of uh, endemic forms of, of racism and colonialism and so on in U.S. foreign policy making. So how can these conversations that are now taking place in D.C. and some of our foreign policy institutions be opportunities for us to think anew about what religion has to do with it all? Secondly, some of the crises that are happening globally is threats to the liberal political order, challenges to capitalism and globalization, um, the climate collapse and the collapses that are happening all around the world relating to, to climate change. How can those simultaneously, again, these disruptions be opportunities for thinking anew about the place of religion in foreign policy making, both how it's thought about and and how it is, how policymaking actions are, um, are invoked and, and the connection then about these, these movements and these actions that are taking place to address these issues in the US and then how they connect with US foreign policymaking and transnational groups. So we're gonna dive into each of those topics a little bit more in our conversation today. Um, and we have three wonderful participants from the workshop who I'm going to invite to um, jump onto the screen now by opening their video. So I want to just briefly introduce the, the three folks who've just joined us here. Um, first is well, Trina Middleton, who is the executive director for uh, Community Renewal Society. While Trina is trained as a community organizer and engages deeply in efforts focusing on anti-racism, earth justice, and queer rights, among other causes, in the U.S., um, both in the U.S. and as part of transnational movements. Secondly, we have Corey Walker, who is professor of humanities at Wake Forest University, who focuses on African-American religious thought and practice, and including African-American uh, approaches to religious freedom. And most importantly, Corey is an HDS alum. So welcome back to HDS, Corey. And then third, we have John Hartley, who's a comparative sociologist at Yale um, and focuses in particular on religion and politics, including Christian Muslim relations and evangelicalism. All three of these folks who are gathered with us are both scholars and practitioners who have been, who deeply wrestled with these questions. They're just a slice of those we had gathered with us last week. Um, and you can see their full bios if you follow the links that Navi just threw into the chat box. There's a lot more great details about the incredible work that they're doing, both in the space of scholarship and activism. But let's hear from them. So I'm going to pass it back to you, Peter, to kick us off. Great. Great. Thanks so much, Suzanne. And Waltrina, Corey, and John, thank you all so much for being willing to 
um, uh, share your, your deep experience and insight with us today. So I, I wanted to get started by picking up on a theme that I think we can agree recurred in various forms throughout the entirety of the discussions we had last week, which is about the, the question of the translatability or non-translatability of the critical study of religion. Um, you know, whether you're a, 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 a critical scholar of religion or you are an activist bearing witness to mechanisms and structures of inequality and exclusion, and you're considering, you know, bringing your knowledge and your insight into policy spaces, there seem to be all sorts of ethical dilemmas that come up around that. We're all familiar with this idea of, of trying to speak truth to power, but if power itself is vested in and captured by um, certain kinds of limiting categories and constructs around say religion, the idea of good religion versus bad religion, certain ideas about the boundaries of what constitutes religion, certain kind of limitations in terms of understanding who or what counts as a relevant re religious actor. You know, do you not by engaging with religion, do you not by engaging with policymakers run the risk of to some extent simply reproducing those same uh, structures. And so I, I'd love to start by asking your thoughts on this question of the pros and cons of uh, critical scholars and social ju justice activists engaging uh, with policymakers. Um, and you know, happy for whoever of the three of you would, would like to start just to just come on in. Oh, Peter, thanks. I'll, I'll start us off. Um, that was one of the themes, uh, central themes running throughout our conversations uh, last week. And it was one of the salient themes that runs through uh, critical studies of religion uh, in the scholarship and also in the broader realm of activism uh, and social justice movements. Um, there is no safe space in terms of operating within that framework. Um, and that's the one thing I think we really drew out of the conversation that uh, we don't, no one wants to be uh, the new mandarins to power, uh, if you will, to, to borrow that from uh, our good colleague Noam Chomsky. But at the same time, there's a way in which uh, scholarship uh, and, and critical practices can inform new conceptualizations of religion that then can inform uh, a new type of politics undergirded by uh, a new ethic, uh, an ethic that advances a much more humane society. So uh, I'll give you an, an example of this. In, in my scholarship, in my work, uh, after uh, the turn of the, the, the millennium, um, what we were preoccupied with, uh, with a group of scholars from across the, the nation and across the world, were looking at new configurations of political theology that had come, uh, come to the forefront. And so with uh, some colleagues at the American Academy of Religion, we created a five-year consultation uh, on theology and the political, where we were looking at manifestations of new political theologies and new uh, political spiritualities broadly uh, and their influence uh, on politics and a growing authoritarianism, growing modes of ethno-national, uh, ethno-nationalist movements that were religiously inspired. Uh, we recognize that there's a long genealogy uh, to these movements and the ways in which religion influences politics, but we also recognize that there's something different emerging in our moment. 
And what that enabled us to do was to sort of get some uh, traction and, and develop uh, a, a broader conceptual apparatus to begin to describe uh, what we're seeing, uh, how we're understanding how actors are motivated uh, and how they're developing uh, new modes of uh, political uh, identities, as well as how they're uh, attempting to push in, in uh, foreground a new model of politics that happened within uh, the civil society act sector, but also uh, influenced uh, for the, formal, uh, the formal realm of politics. That enabled us to really develop some resources that we needed to begin to think about. What that has also in, uh, enabled us to do is then to look at, well, how can we translate this knowledge to a broad public? And that's where the, our work in religious, religious freedom, African-Americans and religious freedom uh, evolved. And uh, with my dear colleague, uh, Sabrina Dent, who's president of the Center for Faith, Justice and Reconciliation, we, we developed a, a loose funded project on looking at African-Americans and religious freedom, bringing together that critical understanding of religion, its long history, but also its contemporary manifestations and how we begin to develop uh, a sort of a, dial, a dialectical relationship between the domestic sphere and international politics. We wanted to then look at how do you translate this into everyday practice? We developed a number of mechanisms to uh, provide resources for communities, but most importantly, I think it has shaped our thinking and it reinforced uh, by the conversations that we had last week that there is a critical need to continue to deepen this work. There is a critical need uh, to have broad sets of conversations so that those discursive resources can then inform the conversations that uh, political actors are having with um, uh, formal uh, politicians, diplomats, and uh, foreign policy uh, experts. But more importantly, it enables us to then develop and animate a new, a new politics that connects individuals within uh, the US to broader movements uh, across the globe to then hopefully develop uh, some new, uh, more humane societies uh, and also thwart some of the uh, violent, uh, religiously inspired ethno-nationalist ethno uh, politics that we see emerge along with uh, the deep democratic deficits that we're seeing emerge globally. Great, Corey, thank you so much for that. And, and by, by the way, I put in the chat box a link to um, the work that you did with Sabrina Dent on African-Americans and religious freedom if folks would like to, to, to check it out. Um, Waltrina or, or John, would, would either of you like to, to come in on this point? Yes, um, and thank you so much. I appreciated um, Corey's reflections very much. Um, and I just would like to just simply um, say that I think that it's very profound the ways that grassroots movements um, have such a deep influence um, on the progression of or the direction of politics. Um, and oftentimes, if we're lucky, we'll also see it at the intersection of religion. Um, and some examples would be for when I lived in Cleveland um, during the organizing around Tamir Rice, um, there was a group of, of activists that modeled their activism around Marion Wright Elderman's um, model um, for activism, which was deeply centered on educating yourself 
not only um, about the issue and present, but also becoming scholars of movement work, um, preparing yourself to understand what are some of the policies and works of those that came before us um, that was effective in past movements. Um, like so, one would also look at the Black Panther Party as well as the Rainbow Coalition connected to it. Um, all of the, the works that they did, I mean, starting as a political party, also became um, a social, socioeconomic movement, providing um, food and education and resources within the community from a very grassroots level. Um, and then I would also um, lastly um, look at the work of the Nation of Islam, for example. When we saw the Million Man March, it was not by accident that that initial gathering, because following that, you also had the Million Women March, you had the um, Million Family March, but it began with the Million Man March right there <laughs> on the steps of the Capitol, facing the Capitol in the nation, the, uh, the heart of our, of our nation, um, where, which was led by um, this faith-centered um, organization or, or religion. Um, and, and it had a very direct um, message that spoke to not only affirming the humanity of Black men, um, but also um, affirming the power and influence of the Nation of Islam or the religion of Islam, but even furthermore, um, addressing some of the challenges, the socio-political challenges that Black men face in our society um, in terms of equity, um, racism, and the like. Um, and there were others like Fannie Lou Hamer, um, who used um, education and politics as a way to train and to equip many of the, the civil rights leaders that we list up, including um, Dr. King, including Rosa Parks. And so all of these principles, these intersectional principles of politics, religion, um, and activism, um, I think laid the foundation for the movements we see today. And that brings me to Black Lives Matter um, and the movement for Black Lives, and there's so many others. But because that perhaps comes in the forefront of folks' mind right now, if you were to go to the Black Lives Matter website, um, you're going to find resources that helps to educate you, but also you're going to see a political agenda, um, and, and not only domestically, but globally as well. Um, when many of our political figures were silent around solidarity, around Palestine, um, and, and, and so many other issues, then Black Lives Matter um, put forth um, an agenda um, alongside its own um, national or domestic movement. Um, and it also aligned itself with um, indigenous causes, with the pipeline in solidarity with the Dakotas um, in the Black Hills. Um, of, of South and, and North Dakota. And so I think that there is um, an opportunity to be able to bridge the past with the present. Um, and there's also an opportunity to strengthen the voices of grassroots community members that are impacted that may not often have the opportunity to share those platforms. It helps to elevate those spaces and those voices. Thanks, Faltrina. I, I really, and, and Corey, I think both I really respect and appreciate both the things you were saying, both the kind of the kinds of work you're describing and just in kind of developing new discourse of resources and creating 
and really more recognizing, recognizing the spaces that already exist where those kinds of movements are taking shape and having influence. And I think that kind of that both of those things seem to be really important to a, a form of intervention like you're talking about, Peter, that's not just reproducing the same system, right? Um, because if, if the, the system will do what it can to cannibalize and reproduce its power structure. It's just, that's just, that's the way it is, right? And so I think that the, the kinds of interventions that, that Corey and Wilchina are talking about kind of point to how, kind of on the, on the one level, how, how vital it is that we're not only, that people like me, in all the ways that I'm me, aren't only talking about these things, right? But that in ways that haven't always been typical, um, that we're, I think this is a place where religious actors have, have a you know, contribution to make, where we're choosing to use the resources we have to lift up and acknowledge people and circumstances and movements that wouldn't otherwise get noticed. And that's very contrary to the way the system of power works, right? Um, the system of power says, oh, I, people like me, will have friends like Corey and Wiltrina and will find ways to use them to accomplish goals that I have. Um, it's much less, less like often the case that people like, like us um, will say, hey, you know what? We, we will give away the power and resources that we have we will um, offer them up to people who we have typically failed to recognize um, and disrupt this system, not only by the support of our brothers and sisters who, who have often been marginalized, but by actually um, kind of, you know, in, in, a, in a typical Christian idiom, by actually laying ourselves down in the cause. Um, and so that, and I think that a lot of that comes to what well, has to some point in time come down to recognizing all those binaries that, that Susie, you were introducing and finding a way to transcend them, right? Finding a way to transcend them that, that recognizes the need for some groups of people to, to be gaining power, um, and calls those of us who have power that we may not even realize we have to, to lay it down. Thank you, John, and and Waltrian as well. Waltrian, did you want to add? Yeah, please, please go ahead. No, I just um, and I mentioned um, Sandy Lehmer. I, I wanted to use her as an example for how this was someone who um, grassroots in community centered, um, you know, also very much so engaged with politics um, on a national level, but also used her platform to provide resources locally. But the name that I wanted to lift up in terms of an influence on the civil rights um, figures was Satema Clark. Um, um, so I just wanted to make that distinction between the two. But certainly, um, Fannie Lou Hamer um, is a model um, at these intersections as well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, Waltrina. Um, Corey, did, did you want to add something? The the get to I want to I want to really elevate that translatability, untranslatability uh, quagmire. We're also, with all of the rich histories that Waltrina is bringing to the forefront and experiences that then lead us to new forms of knowledge about how we understand politics, some foundational questions about the very meaning of citizenship, how do we then enact that within a ethnically plural democracy that is deeply uh, religiously plural, they're providing these new ways of thinking and new ideas that are emerging. 
that in many ways, what we see in the formal political arena is an untranslatability and a, a sort of a conceptual segregation uh, that's operative. And that conceptual segregation is that um, these social movement groups, these uh, racialized uh, uh, minorities provide us with experience, if you will. But the theory uh, and the ways in which we operate, uh, the formal uh, theoretical uh, uh, frameworks of our politics, particularly uh, our foreign uh, policy in its many dimensions, are ways in which they're grounded in a certain uh, theoretical and conceptual apparatus that cannot read those knowledges that emerge. So that, that enables a continuing bulwark of untranslatability between uh, what we're talking about in terms of the richness of these resources and these religious resources and the conceptual and theoretical um, containers or the conceptual and theoretical barriers uh, that formally cannot read these formations. So we really want to engage in, in that uh, aspect as well that really goes to the point of the translatability or untranslatability of these uh, critical ways of thinking about religion. I love that. That reminds me of work of a colleague here. Um, you guys may be familiar with the work of James Scott on the idea of hidden transcripts, right? That the, 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 it's not only like you're talking about that these resources are not easily legible or translatable by kind of the powers, the structures that be. But one of the reasons why is because those were those, those discourses emerged in a, in a kind of way that was intentionally hidden by the power structures, right? So, um, and that hiddenness, you know, that was pretty intentional um, needs to somehow or another kind of be undone. And um, yeah, so I just, yeah, disagree. Okay. Thank, thank you, John. So before handing over to Susie to kind of carry the conversation forward into its next phase, I just wanted to remind our audience that you can um, pose a question to uh, our speakers at any point during the session today uh, by using the Q&A function that's down there on the main Zoom control panel. And um, you can just type your question and we'll be putting a selection of them to, the, to our speakers uh, a little later. Uh, Susie, over to you. Thanks, Peter. And I, and I wanna add as well that there was, um, thank you for all of your comments so far, everybody. You did a really great job capturing a lot of the conversation we had. And there was also this theme of just the ethics of it all too in religious studies scholars engage in activists engaging with policymakers, which of course is a reflection of a long time conversation that has been happening about whether you can make more change from engaging within or um, if it's better to stay outside and sort of resist and, and persist in that in pushing. Um, and we, there, we were not of one piece or position in terms of whether or not to engage, I think it's important to say. But one thing that I think is highlighted in the remarks you just made is um, the opportunities that exist in thinking critically about these questions as they manifest in the US and then how that can shape new directions in foreign policy. So when it comes to religious freedom, for example, we have sort of this narrative in, in the United States of us being founded with the freedom of religion uh, or with religious freedom 
and that all groups were existing with religious freedom and so on. But of course, with the with the work, Corey, and that you were doing with Sabrina and others to look at how African-Americans have experienced religion and forms of religious persecution throughout the life of the country. It offers more of a critical understanding of how religious freedom has been conceptualized and understood in the U.S. that can then help us think about religious freedom in our foreign policy and how we're understanding it and who it applies to overseas in really rich and critical ways. And while Trina, what you're, what you're highlighting also shows the ways in which activism and scholarship can, can be working together um, to get us outside of those conceptual traps, Corey, in order to um, potentially influence policy making, whether from the inside or from the outside, in I think these critical ways. And I think, honestly, I think that's critical for the future of religious studies too, is, is to be able to move in those kind of applied and engaged directions in order to support the work of um, justice making. So I wanna turn uh, to something that I spoke about a little bit in my opening comments, um, which is about the current moment in the US and the conversations that have been happening thanks to the, the Black Lives Matter movement and others that in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd have become, have become really far more mainstream than they had in the recent past. And especially when it comes to foreign policy making, thinking about um, the ways that race plays into foreign policy making priorities. And, um, and our understanding of religion and the way in which religion plays into some of those, those uh, foreign policy making of the US. So I wonder if I could invite the three of you to reflect a little bit on that component of the conversation and thinking about um, both the question of how do we see race playing out in, in foreign policy making about religion, but also how these conversations that have now become more mainstream that have um, brought important criticisms and illumination to bear about the pernicious endemic ways in which when we bring American solutions overseas, we're potentially um, exporting some of these forms of racism um, overseas in, in colonial manners. Um, how this current moment can be an opportunity to transform some of the ways in which we religion plays into that. So again, I'll open it up broadly for whoever, whichever brave soul wants to start us off. Maltrina. Sure, I mean, I do believe that um, we would be remiss if we did not take a look at what we are seeing unfolding globally in this moment right now. Um, and being able to like, I listened to um, a, a, a podcast recently where folks were using the sanctions and non-sanctions against Russia to condemn um, President Biden on pipeline. Um, and so looking at, well, if we're going to, um, instead of maintaining um, our relationship in terms of fuel or um, fuel from Russia, then just ban that altogether and then let's reinstate the pipeline. Um, and so having this conversation or this dialogue um, regarding the ethics um, to address the, the crises that we see abroad, um, but also challenging um, and compromising the ethics of, of, of the policies that we have in place here domestically. Um, and so do we have to sacrifice one for the other um, if we want to impose policies that will address um, the um, illegal crimes against humanity that we're witnessing? 
um, abroad, does that mean abandoning our commitment to clean and safe and access to water, honoring indigenous sacred land, um, and all of the reasons that ethically hold us accountable to how we handle the, the issue of pipeline here? Um, do we just abandon that for the sake of being able to make a powerful political statement abroad? Um, and when we think of the, the water protectors and all of the, 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 the political, cultural, religious, and, uh, and sacred reasons that they upheld, and not only in the Dakotas, but also in North Carolina, in Michigan, uh, we see the impact and the sacredness of water. Um, so just being able to see that we uh, that there were some folks in that particular um, dialogue um, willing to say um, this political um, global um, moment that we're in right now trumps um, our responsibility ethically and politically um, and culturally here um, in the United States. I also think that what we see when, um, in this moment is also taking a, a closer look at, um, I know one of the things that we talked about last week, um, looking at political prisoners. Um, for a great period of time, like Asada Shakur, um, still um, exiled in Cuba, um, considered a political prisoner um, because of her connection um, with the uh, Black Panther Party and her work there. Um, and being able to raise greater awareness around the political, I can't even say the word, um, the way that we politicize political prisoners um, and, and hold them um, um, at bay, like having her not even be able to come back to her native land um, just because of some of the domestic principles or so-called principles that we have here. Um, so I think that in this moment, the, these um, international um, dialogue that we're having around these issues, political issues, not only um, challenges us um, in, um, in how we respond to those, those global issues, but also it challenges us to rethink and reimagine how we engage these issues domestically. Um, so if we're talking about political um, prisoners on a, on, a, on a global scale, that will force us to have that dialogue here. How do we reassess Asada Shakur? And I mentioned her specifically because of the influence that we see that she has in um, this 21st century movement for Black lives. Um, you have the, the women, Asada's daughters, um, that are committed um, to the principles of addressing um, the, the um, prison industrial complex, um, addressing um, sexism, um, classism, and all of those um, issues that still threaten our society. Um, and that's a direct influence because of her writings and her work. Um, whenever we saw activism um, on the streets, and it, it's not just in Ferguson, but all across this country, it often started with the words of Asada Shakur. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and support one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Um, and when I witnessed the, the articulation of those words um, in this 21st century movement, um, and, and understanding the impact of her, um, her um, scholarship on this present movement and seeing how it also translates on a national level. Um, it, it's translated something that's very transformative and prophetic and profound that uh, must be reassessed um, today.
Thank you, Waltrina. And I especially appreciate, you know, we talked about, and I was just talking about the ways in which um, the issues here in the U.S. can can shape our priorities overseas. But of course, there's a lot of movement making that's happening in our foreign policy that can in turn create an opportunity for us to reflect domestically on, on what our actual priorities are and how in some of the disconnect or frankly hypocrisy between the things we prioritize and focus on overseas and domestically. Corey or John? John, you wanna go? Okay. Well, I, I just want to uh, sort of amplify uh, what Waltrina uh, eloquently spoke about. I mean, what we're seeing is real movements in civil society that are challenging uh, those formal regimes of democracy and creating really a, a, a legitimation crisis for democratic societies. Um, it's beyond just, you know, it, it, it moves beyond just the idea of hypocrisy, but it is calling into question uh, those foundational frameworks of the ways in which we've operated uh, democratically that have privilege certain uh, hierarchies of power and asymmetries of knowledge production and reproduction, as well as uh, engage in a conceptual, a theoretical apartheid that seeks to uh, limit domestic politics from uh, foreign po uh, our, foreign our foreign policy. But we, but st students and uh, young folks and these uh, social uh, movements for social justice are really uh, tearing along those borders and really questioning uh, the legitimacy of that, of that demarcation. Two, two aspects of this, I think we, we talked about uh, last week that really came to the, that really comes to the forefront in this regard. When we think of the American Spring, and this is how we look at, you know, what, what precipitated in 2020, the American Spring is attempted to be channeled into uh, an, an idea of racial reckoning, which reinforces a dominant, uh, the dominant uh, formation of sovereignty of the United States, and then channeling this to a question around uh, purely the politics of domestic race, uh, disconnected from the international flows around the politics of race and uh, the politics of white supremacy. So the American Spring, which is the culmination of a series of movements that we can see emerge in uh, the, the millennium uh, from uh, the Genesis in Louisiana to Trayvon Martin to Ferguson, and of course, uh, to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, what we're seeing is the culmination of a new, uh, a new movement that's not just challenging uh, a particularly narrowly construed racial regime in the United States, but is also making solidarity with new, mo new movements and new flows of international politics that are then connecting globally to begin to challenge the ways in which sovereignty has expressed itself, the ways in which nation states engage in a sort of diplomatic uh, diplomacy that marginalizes the lives and life chances of the majority of the world's population. So that American spring is a moment of challenge. 
But we also see the counter-revolution emerging. And this is something that we talked about with uh, the emergence of, uh, on the, on the uh, public scene, uh, Pat Buchanan's uh, exemplary speech at the 1992 Republican National Convention, where he sought to shift away from the politics of a Cold War to the politics of white Christian nationalism itself. And that pronouncement brought to the forefront an idea that's being animated in these broad transnational movements around white nationalist identity that then inform a growing and continuing to be influential uh, Christian nationalist movement and evangelical movement that has a long tradition, of course, but in this current modality is animating a new style of politics that has deep, at its deep roots a deep suspicion of democracy and an embrace of authoritarianism and an international uh, linkage with new authoritarian movements that are also reflect this religious formation that is at the same time a racial formation. What we have to do is now begin to understand how do we develop a politics that animates and deepens the deep democratic elements uh, of the American spring, if you will, while at the same time recognizing the legitimation crisis of democracy that's being precipitated by the rise of these white nationalist movements that are deeply, uh, that deeply draw on the languages, ideas, and symbols of Christianity to reinforce new modes of authoritarianism. We're facing a confrontation uh, around the very viability and future of democracy itself. And if we're, un if we're uncritical and first reinforcing those dominant frameworks of, of sovereignty that in many ways we see uh, are uh, trying to, uh, movements are trying to move beyond and inaugurate a planetary response, then we may find ourselves reinforcing the boundaries that really elevate uh, those deep uh, ethno-nationalist and Christian uh, elements that then reinforce a really uh, violent and antagonistic nationalist sovereignty that then precipitates more global crises abroad and at home. And we just see the example of what's going on in Ukraine right now and the deep division in political rhetoric and the uh, embrace of a open authoritarianism by one of the major political parties in the US, the Republican Party. I really, I really like, Corey, the way that you emphasize the notions of sovereignty there, right? Because I think that when we're, um, when we're pressing into these areas of how do the, the, um, the, the converging transnational movements, right, that are, are disrupting these power structures, you know, that's, you know, the accumulations of power in unconventional spaces, um, able to use new technologies and to gather and connect with one another in whole new ways, and being very disruptive to the the ways that sovereignty has been understood, um, the kinds of institutional boundaries that were put in place to guard and protect 
the, the bases of that sovereignty um, in nation states. And so I, and I, so I think that that, that that sense of sovereignty is, is really critical to this. And, and I think it also helps us to understand a little bit kind of how, how that responsive counter-movement dynamic comes so forcefully, right? Because uh, these, these ideas and these, the, the, the notions in which we um, connect our identities and our community's identities with the legitimacy of those sovereignties um, is pretty intense. <laughs> it's pretty strong. And when, when those types of things start to get challenged, as they have in the United States, it stirs a lot. And, um, and it stirs a lot, as, as, as Waltrina was saying, when these movements are transnational and when their influences are kind of, they're going out from the United States and coming back to the United States, they're coming out from Africa and then back to Africa, they're going, they're circulating. Um, it's, it's extraordinarily disruptive. And I think that, I think there is a real risk in that, as you said, Corey, of the, the sheer force of that disruption, um, you know, unintentionally leading to a, con a, a forceful consolidation of the status quo. Um, and, and, and how we go about um, a new politics that um, can accomplish those ends is I think one of the things we ended up talking quite a bit last week about, you know, how pragmatic could we be? How incrementalist could we, we be? How revolutionary does this need to be? Um, and, and those are just, those are the types of questions when we talk about these movements and what they mean, not only for our own lives and our societies, but for the world as a whole. Immediately, you know, they, they, have, to come, they have to come up. And that, like you had said, um, Susie, that we were not of one cloth, right? There's a variety of perspectives on, on all those issues in our conversation. I, I, I appreciate um, both of you, especially um, thanks for also introducing the technology piece. Um, um, and of course, you know, before you mentioned in terms of solidarity, um, looking at those two together um, is just so powerful. Um, I know one of the terms Arab, Arab Spring, um, you know, during that um, uprising, um, technology was able to help sustain that movement and also offer support and encouragement um, to those um, who were leading that movement. And like so, um, in Ferguson, when um, activists were faced with um, tear gas, um, they were receiving resources um, internationally, advising them on how to make your own gear to protect your eyes. Um, and um, just thinking about just the solidarity um, in, the, in the sharing of resources through the power of technology um, is so critical and transformative, but also to the point, again, of reimagining the ways um, and even the, the, what is the umbrella, um, I can't remember what it was called, the umbrella movement um, that we saw in um, Hong Kong um, that was inspired by the hands up, don't shoot movement um, a lot, you know, because of what they witnessed um, in, in Missouri. Um, but, I, but I would also say, once again, kind of, I know we're looking at George Floyd, but I also like to um, reemphasize some of those movements that made um, the, the courageousness that we witnessed with George Floyd possible. Um, so, you know, we wouldn't have this moment of celebrating Juneteenth um, without Tulsa, you know, and um, we wouldn't um, have the new Jim Crow work um, that we're looking at right now without looking at the work of Ida B. Wells with anti-lynching. Um, and even um, my own family that was impacted by um, the killings um, at Mother Emanuel 
um, you know, I'm always mindful of the fact of the young women um, who died in, in Birmingham church because of the bombing and the attack on the church. Um, and so what, what does this have to do with the, the whole um, global or international landscape? Um, when we look at, as um, John has already reiterated, um, the influence of these domestic occurrences um, and, and the influence that it has nationally, we can also think about the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and how that exposure, um, and I would even align that with Emmett Till, those exposures um, help to bring global consciousness um, and expose um, some of those protracted realities that many communities continue to experience. Um, and, and, it, and it can model liberation, it can model freedom and justice. But I think most importantly for me, for my location, my faith-based location, um, is it, it models moral consciousness. Um, it helps to infuse that moral consciousness into our politics. So when, when we look at going back at apartheid, um, there wasn't just a trial by the state of these who committed these crimes against humanity. There was also the truth and reconciliation hearing. Um, and, and, there was, and there's something powerful to be said that alongside um, the, the truth and reconciliation um, raised moral consciousness. It raised our faith, um, all of this alongside our uh, state government policies um, and transforming the whole construct um, of, of its government. Um, but also understanding that when we look at ways to address um, these types of crimes against humanity, Communities all around the world look to that model um, with whatever critical critical lens you may have, saying it was successful or not. Um, it still serves as a model, and we can't um, abstract the the moral consciousness that was um, in, infused in um, the anti-apartheid movement. Um, when we think of anti-apartheid, we think of Desmond Tutu. You know, you know, we think of many. Um, Others as well, of course, obviously, but just thinking of the moral consciousness that he helped to raise there. So um, I just wanted to add that. Corey, did you want to add something as well? I want to pick up on, 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 on something John said that that's a very important point um, that really goes to underscore uh, how we begin to understand uh, these social movements. Uh, that while Trina is describing and delineating for us these global uh, social movements and the implications for modes of democratic governance in our contemporary moment. Uh, this conflict of sovereignties uh, is something that we really need to uh, underscore and interrogate. And this is uh, one of the issues that came out uh, in our conversations uh, last week and, and, and throughout the deliberations. It wove a thread through uh, uh, those frameworks. And those conflicts of sovereignty express themselves uh, in not only providing us with some penultimate um, forms of po uh, political allegiance and social and cultural allegiance, um, it also then in, in, uh, animates those ultimate forms of allegiance uh, that then may mitigate against uh, how we renew democracy, how we may renew political community, and how we may uh, imbue new modes of solidarity within a racially, ethnically, and religiously plural uh, uh, context, not to mention 
how do we respond to global planetary crises in our moment uh, from the pandemic to the rise of uh, new forms of authoritarianism to the decline in democracy. If we don't begin to understand that this conflict in sovereignty, uh, these conflicts in sovereignty lie at the heart of how we adjudicate the competing, the competing claims of social movement actors for justice and the ways in which we have traditionally operationalized uh, modes of uh, governance, both uh, domestically uh, as well as internationally, we can actually precipitate a, a far deeper crisis whereby those actors uh, on, in progressive social movements May not, adhe may not see the legitimacy of the state as a resource, but as a barrier. And those actors on the right may see that the state uh, no longer provides any legitimacy, thus unleashing new forms of violence, both domestically and supporting new modes of violence internationally. So we see a convergence uh, around the deep and uh, the broad and deep legitimation crisis of democracy itself. And, and of course, I'm pulling that idea uh, from uh, Jürgen Abermas from the mid 70s in and through our contemporary moment, because that cr the crisis in democracy is something that we have to critically confront and religion as a resource and religion as uh, a potential uh, poison for democracy animates that conflict and sovereignties. And it also can uh, animate a deeper crisis uh, in democratic modes of governance uh, and animate those authoritarian moves uh, global, uh, domestically and globally. So I just wanted to uh, highlight that, that really is, is something critical that these uh, are conceptual uh, as well as our uh, uh, empirical work uh, have informed us of, of how we begin to think about uh, democracy in our contemporary moment, as well as begin to imagine uh, new democratic futures. Which that, that makes me think, Corey, about this, how maybe one of the things that this project, Peter, that you and Susie are helping to lead, you know, pays attention to, I don't, I don't know, maybe whether it does or not, is, is the 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 kinds of spaces that that need to be created um, in order for uh, the deliberative conversations that that are required that Corey is kind of highlighting there's there's a kind of deliberative process that is is necessary um, to to engage and recognize the dynamics that Corey's talking about and it's not a kind of space that at least the United States and our polarized politics you know, makes room for in the least bit, right? Um, and so, and, and that has deep implications for our foreign policy. Um, and I think that it might be that one of the, one of the uh, unique spaces that, that exists or could be curated would, would involve religious actors um, who, who carry with them a kind of legitimacy that's like what Trina said, it's not just grounded in like traditional American white Christianity, um, but it's grounded in a, in a more holistic and more, and using Corey's language, more democratic apprehension of what religion is in our country. Um, and that, that, that it, it could be a very productive space. Absolutely. And Thank I know you. we probably want to move on as well, but I, I'm ahead, really okay. excited by this, 
conversation because I think it's really affirming um, for me. It's celebratory and affirming of, of, of youth and young adults and grassroots movement. I mean, and no, this is not unique. I mean, every major movement that we've witnessed um, had youth and young adults centered um, at its core to help to propel that movement forward. Um, and but just the courageousness. Even, I, I just remember when Walter Scott was murdered um, in Charleston, and this was right before my cousin was murdered. Um, I, I, along with a group of others, went to Charleston to try to organize there and to raise awareness. And that's where I grew up. But I re remember we met, and I won't say who, which group it was, but we met with this um, historic group in the city. And they said, you know, don't bring that Black Lives Matter mess here. You know, we're, we're organized, we're orderly. And their assumption was that we did not have anything to contribute to the narrative, to the movement, um, that we could not transform it in any way um, that would have an impact. Um, and it was really painful because the narrative was um, that it couldn't, that this wasn't an intergenerational movement um, or moment. Um, and here, um, the, 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 when we went to the city, the first thing we did was try to meet with our elders and to glean from them and work together. And that's not the, um, the, the only um, response. I mean, of course, we were welcome into other spaces, but I also know that amidst this movement, this movement that we're witnessing, um, the George Floyd, et cetera, there's a call for reparations. Um, and there's been a longstanding call for reparations. Um, but I think that even that call itself has been amplified, um, not only looking at reparations for um, Blacks or descendants of Africa here in this country, um, the U.S., but looking at reparations for um, Asian community, for in Native Indigenous, and across the globe. Um, and just yesterday, and I want to pull it up because I want to say it correctly, um, there were faith leaders who convened with congressional leaders Sheila, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee and Representative Barbara Lee to introduce um, um, House um, Bill 40 um, on reparations and truth telling. And also um, Representative Barbara Lee um, is the lead sponsor for um, House Resolution 19 on a Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission Act. Um, and I personally believe that, and this isn't news, these, these, this resolution and this bill had been introduced many years ago, but George Floyd, um, you know, uh, Corey spoke of um, 2020, 2021, and those movements we saw during those springs, those movements made yesterday possible. I don't believe that we would be having a conversation about a resolution on the House floor about reparations um, without the momentum of these movements. And, I, I, and the implications of such a bill that will have on um, not only domestic, but global policy as well, we'll be thinking about reparations for other nations around this world that has been harmed due to um, colonialism, due to um, the suffering that we have seen imposed on communities by these powers. Thank you to all of you. I I want to um, acknowledge as well that in the movements that you're talking about, especially Altrina, the illustrations that you're giving us of these, these different transnational movements, it's also pushing against the sort of popular narratives, the media narratives of what the religious 
what the religious community is, the legitimate religious community is in the U.S. and its influence and in foreign policy priorities. So as I noted before, and John, I think you said something to this effect as well at one point in our conversations leading into the workshops, but the way that culture wars are defined and what the religious position is within the culture wars has been very racialized and partisanized. And I think these movements that have arisen um, leading up to and after the murder of George Floyd have helped push back against this idea that what is the religious influence on U.S. foreign policy is primarily defined by the priorities and commitments of one particular bloc, namely um, often the conservative white evangelical bloc. And, and indeed, the ways in which Black Lives Matter and other indigenous movements that have taken more of a... Um, have become more in, into the center of visibility and the aftermath of, of George Floyd pushes against that and questions that. But it also speaks to another element of our, of our discussion, which was about um, what we emphasize when we emphasize religious influence. And so while Trina, you've been, you've been mentioning a number of you know, clerical religious leaders, those who signed the letters and so on. And, and that tends to be how we have thought about what the religious influence is or the role of religion in some of these movements. Um, but we had, a, we had some really interesting discussions about non-institutionalized religion and what emphasizing different aspects, different dimensions of religion can offer in terms of thinking anew about how religion influences domestic and, um, and, and foreign policy. And so I wonder if you might just share a little bit with folks um, about the, well, Trina, what you shared and, and our discussion broadly about the transnational dimensions of BLM and, um, and the ways in which traditional and indigenous non-institutionalized religion shows up in those movements alongside, of course, the, the more institutionalized religion that, that we're familiar with, the civil rights movement and others, historic movements. Yeah, you know, one of the um, examples that um, is really dear to me is looking at the model of Sojourner Truth. Um, and Sojourner Truth at a very young age, um, um, you know, as an enslaved child, um, was separated from her family. Um, she was moved from one um, plantation to another. And so at a very young age, um, she somehow was able to maintain this cultural memory of um, building an altar um, that honored her African roots and the religiosity of her African heritage as a young child. Um, and that relationship, that cultural and that religious memory con continued to shape and mold her as she developed and grew um, into a woman and one day she just decided to walk off the plantation and liberate herself because God told her so and became an itinerant minister. But she used her platform and her faith to engage the um, socio-political um, 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 uh, conversation that was um, present in her 19th century period. Um, and that included the women's suffrage movement, but it also addressed um, the abolishment of slavery, um, looking at um, abolitionism. Um, but she also looked at the socioeconomic state of America and her um, engagement on these issues had a direct influence on the way that we saw the constitution um, respond to the need for women and people of color, black people in particular, to be recognized as human and to also have that um, constitutional right to vote, to be citizens who can vote. 
And one can only hope and imagine that that influenced also um, the ways that we saw the laws around the world were transformed with respect to slavery, the institution of slavery, um, and to dismantling that. And um, she was unapologetic um, in the platforms um, where she was, where she would, um, when her, her infamous speech, Ain't I a Woman, um, when she was making the case about women's suffrage rights, um, she asked the question about, you know, where did your God come from? Where did your God come from? From God and a woman, man ain't got nothing to do with it, you know? And she was challenging the patriarchal, um, white supremacist status quo by asking a theological question um, that had direct implications on this political, social political moment. And so I think that um, looking at how all of that began um, because of her um, African religiosity and that uh, capacity to be able to um, retain that um, oral history, that very limited access she had to that oral history because she was separated from her family at such a young age, but also somehow being able to retain that cultural memory um, or spiritual memory um, and for all of that to have an influence on um, the ways that she engaged the work that she said God called her to do that had um, a huge influence on domestic and global policy. Oh, and I also... Um, with goodness, if I didn't mention one of my mentors and inspiration, Dr. Iva Carruthers, um, who is the um, general secretary for the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference. Um, and following the aftermath of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita and the, the leverage breaches um, that we witnessed in, in New Orleans, um, there was a, and we all know, there was a, a delayed response to not only how to proactively prevent the suffering, the displacement and loss that we witnessed in that region, but also in the aftermath. And so the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference did a study, a comparative study on how our nation took a look at this global disaster, which had um, ecological implications as well, um, to the 9-11 response. Um, and in 9-11, you know, we looked at the, eco the ecological implications um, we took a study at infrastructure, funding, um, and also looking at the way Congress um, did um, its, its own research and follow-up, and also the, the lives lost. And they, they did what our government, federal government, failed to do. Um, and that commission interviewed members of that community that, that was impacted. They had then Senator um, Barack Obama, um, there were Maxine Waters, and a host of others who were president is a part of that panel. Um, and they did the work with the community that was informed and inspired by the community. And that research and that study that they did, um, and I think um, the name of the book is The Breach Bearing Witness, um, report of the Katrina National Justice Commission, um, serve as a, as a wonderful model of how we can be proactive um, in responding to natural disasters but also how do we respond in the aftermath and be sensitive um, and cognizant of how it has an impact on culture, the displacement that still is prevalent in New Orleans right now and as a result of that natural disaster. Thank you, Altrina. And that actually sets us up for, the, for a question that Peter's gonna be asking next very nicely. So I'm gonna turn to him, but just wanna underscore again what you were saying with your example of Sojourner Truth and 
I think if we only focus on institutionalized religion, we might miss a figure like Sojourner Truth and the kinds of resources that she's drawing on for her movements, because of course she's not an institutionalized religious figure in the formal sense of it. Um, and she's drawing on, uh, on African indigenous practices and so on to, to bolster her movement, to give meaning to it and to, um, and to mobilize others. So again, this turn away from, from thinking exclusively about institutionalized religion, particularly when we're living through a time, as Corey was speaking to, where traditional institutions are facing a crisis of legitimacy, to think about religion in a more capacious sense, um, as Dr. Diane Moore of the Religion and Public Life Program, often her favorite term, but thinking about it in that more capacious sense to take into account these other dimensions or the stuff of religion that contributes to these movements for justice. So Peter, I'm going to turn to you for the, the final question before we open it up. Sure, sure. Thanks, Susie. So, you know, in the course of our conversation today, there's been, you know, persistent reference to um, the unsettledness of the world, the, the challenges, the, the breaking down and reconfiguration of, of world orders, but also um, just, you know, trends that have now irrevocably seized our daily lives, whether we're talking about climate change, the pandemic, um, new forms of conflict. And so I, I, I wanted to invite all three of you to share reflections that you might have on whether the emergence of new worlds out of these processes might be, or might hold possibilities for doing things differently. And, and if so, how? How, you know, how might we take this moment of unsettledness and allow it to become something that is more generative of justice? Who, who'd, like to, who'd like to kick us off there? I'll jump on that one first, because it's something that Waltrina said and that Corey said earlier really connects up to this with me. Um, and it comes back to the conversations we were having last week about the power of binaries and the ways that, that um, kind of a binary relationship to things can be so problematic. And I think that amidst this disruption, one of the easiest things for any of us to pull, you know, to do is to is to turn to something solid that gives us a sense of stability. And um, and binaries, you know, all the different oppositions we're talking about, progressive, conservative, Democrat, Republican, you know, all those things are one of the main resources that people have to go to that. And I think that that a true challenge to those of us who feel some sort of a call to leadership or to prophetic engagement amidst these times is to figure out how we accomplish the good that we're seeking to facilitate the just cause that that we have identified with or recognized in part in its in whatever sense we can see it to move toward it right because all of our views are limited um, and still transcend the binaries that are at the heart of the accumulation of power into social movements um, that are they're helping us to accomplish our goal. You know, it's like the very tools that we want, even, even an example that comes to my mind is that if we, the one thing that Waltrina's talked about um, and pointing to in the, in the Black Lives Matter movement is the way that in the formal platforms of Black Lives Matter is an amalgamation of different issues, concerns, kind of topics, of political concern, um, they get they get gathered together, and one of the things that does is it gathers power to the movement, right? Um, and it 
it reinforces a whole series of different binaries that make it a, a challenge for people on the other side to pick any one of those issues, race, sexuality, you know, capitalism, et cetera, and engage productively because one or the other of them is part of some other binary that they can't touch because it's taboo, right? And so I think if we're going to use this moment to, to, to find a way to do something differently, then there is a real call uh, upon us to, yeah, we got to use the binaries, but then to help our people to transcend them. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, Jana. And I think that's already half of an answer to one of the questions that I'd wanted to pull out of the chat box anyway. But while Trina or Corey, did, did either of you want to respond as well? Yeah, I, I completely agree with all that John has shared. Um, and I just want to very specifically um, be affirming of, of LGBTQIA plus movement. Um, when we think of movements um, in this nation um, and, and around the world, um, that we would not um, have the momentum um, and the impact without the direct influence um, of our gay community. Um, when we think of Black Lives Matter, founded by three queer women, um, when we think of um, Bayard Rustin with MLK, um, James Baldwin, Langston Hughes, and the influence that um, they have had on um, our culture and society with all of their great contributions. Um, and so I think um, when I look, when I go back and I go back to Ferguson often because it really was a, a great moment to kind of understand sacrifice and suffering um, and protracted trauma. Um, when um, the before faith leaders showed up um, to affirm and honor the humanity of Michael Brown, um, there were a group of activists and organizers that stood watch over Michael's body for that, um, uh, what, four and a half hours, correct me if I'm wrong, that he was exposed in that sun um, after he was murdered. And um, many of those activists that stood watch were from the LGBTQIA plus community. Many um, who refused to leave and became homeless, um, lost their jobs, were kicked out of school, um, and were also not before the, the national media softened up on the portrayal of the activists there um, were portrayed as looters, um, troublemakers, gangsters, criminals, all of these different things. Um, but they maintained their commitment to be in solidarity um, with, um, with Michael and his family and the movement there. Um, I also um, want to reiterate what was shared earlier about the power of technology um, and being able to embrace that um, as something that's transformative and new. And in New York City, um, when a group of activists had gathered um, um, in Manhattan, Angela Davis showed up and she spoke. Um, and they, well, no, she showed up and they were like, can I give her the mic, let her speak. And she said, you know, it's not my role to speak, but this is this generation's movement. Um, and so I want to be affirming that this is your movement. I'm here to show up to offer support and solidarity, but it's not my movement to speak. And that was, that was it, that was what she, those were her comments. Um, and I think so being affirming of um, the power and influence um, of the emergent leaders and youth and young persons um, in the church community, we all, we like to say that the youth are our future, but I always like to counter that with, they are the present, um, they are our future right now. Um, and lastly, I will just conclude with um, Ella Baker um, in, her, in the song, Ella's song, um, where she, one of the verses was, to me, young people come first. They have the courage where we fail. 
and if I could but shed some light as they carry us through the gale. And I think that that speaks to um, the the moment of of being present right now, but also understanding and recognizing the emergent voices, um, indigenous, grassroots, um, in the um, academia, and all of those sacred spaces, um, what are those emergent youth and young adult voices that are coming forth? And are we being present and attentive to what they're saying? Well, Trina, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, Corey, did, did you wanna respond on this point before we move into the to Q&A? Sure. Um... I'm, I'm often reminded of uh, the statement by Walt Whitman uh, in 1871 in Democratic Vistas, where it reminds us that democracy is a great word whose history is yet to be written. In many ways, what we're undertaking is a world historic event where we attempt to shape and form a democratic form of uh, a democratic society that is multiracial, multiethnic, religiously pluralist, and uh, engages in a deeply um, agonistic form of politics, but it doesn't bleed over into an antagonistic form of politics. And what we need to begin to think through is how do we begin to undertake a history uh, of that, uh, of uh, how do we begin to undertake the creation of such a democratic form of society? Um, in many ways, we have some deep and rich resources to draw from. Religion offers us uh, not only the cultures that shape individuals, it also reminds us that religion is part of a world making of deep uh, cultures and traditions of a wide and diverse uh, polity of people. But we also recognize that religion provides us with a cognitive grid to create meaning. And in many ways, uh, that cognitive grid, that meaning-making grid, that way, that way of interpreting and understanding the world uh, can come into conflict with other ways in which individuals are trying to create worlds and are also thinking through uh, what the possibilities are. So we have, a, we have a unique moment. And the reason why I raise up the issue of legitimation crisis is that religion can serve as a resource or religion can continue to animate some of our deepest, most intractable antagonisms. There are no guarantees in the outcome. In many ways, uh, we have to do as generations prior to us have done. We have to actually struggle for the on the terrain uh, to create a democratic society. That's the way in which the renewal of religion can inform our politics and the renewal of religion can inform a deeper, broader democracy. Uh, I'm reminded uh, in the early days of the pandemic, the Indian writer, Arundhati Roy, uh, wrote an essay in the Financial Times, the pandemic is a portal. And she reminded us, this is an opportunity to move through the pandemic and emerge quite differently uh, than uh, out of it than the way we've moved in. What we see is a, a nostalgia that's capturing us of trying to get back to things that are normal. What Roy wants us to do and what the, our conversations challenged us to do is to move through this pandemic, move through this moment of planetary crisis uh, with the re resources of a renewed conception of religion to then reimagine modes of sociality, 
modes of political community, and most importantly, modes, new modes of planetary humanity. If we can do that, that doesn't mean that everything is safe and secure for all space and all time. What we're then providing for future generations is a manner in which we get a conceptual renewal, a deep cognitive renewal can lead to the renewal of new modes of humanity, new modes of human belonging, and new modes of planetary existence. That's the opportunity for us. But there are no guarantees, and democracy is an endless struggle. Corey, thank you so much. Um, in the in interest of time, here's what I'd like to do to wrap us up today. There are a couple of questions that came up in the chat box that I think are interesting because they invite us to think about overcoming obstacles and creating new possibilities. And so I'm just gonna put them both out there and invite any of you who would like to respond to do so. Um, John, these are questions that that you've already kindly engaged with directly in the chat box, but but you should of course also feel free to weigh in. So one is, is from Ian Watt, who I think keying directly off something that you said, John, quote unquote, willing to give away power as, as the key thing, um, what incentives can be used to help this to actually happen? So that's the first. Um, the second comes from Cy Fields, um, who asks, how does religion's impact on domestic and foreign policy make a difference if the end goals of the grassroots activism movements that Dr. Middleton speaks of and the white evangelical political theology's goals are vastly different, thus often putting them in opposition to each other along racial, political, and theological categories. Given this, can religions have any meaningful impact on policy, especially as it relates to Black people domestically and African diaspora? So I'll just throw both of those out there and invite any or all of you to, to weigh in. I'll, if I, I'll, I'll jump in on the, on really briefly. Um, on the second question, the about what's really possible, what can religions offer? Um, I don't know. I, I wonder if there's there's not uh, an error in our assumptions often that the actual deep goals of these groups are so fundamentally in opposition to one another. On a very practical level, and in a in a lot of different ways that are most obviously experienced, they seem pretty fully at odds with one another. But I wonder if there's not ways to have conversations or even just to do analysis to help to open up and illuminate ways in which at a deeper level, there's more complementarity than, than is assumed or felt by either, either any of the groups that are being described. And if so, what kinds of conversations would help to, to illuminate those things? And they're not gonna be um, the same conversations that are most effective for the accumulation of power or the deployment of power. Um, there has to be some sort of a different kind of conversation. Yes, um, I, I thank you for that question. I, and um, I really, um, and Dr. Um, Reverend Sifield is um, a remarkable activist here in Chicago, pastor and organizer. So deep respect um, to him. Um, I appreciate the question because it challenges us in, in, in one or two ways. And remember that cultural memory is really important. Um, we can't forget the intersection of religion, capitalism, um, and enslavement. Um, you had slave ships that were christened um, with names. Um, you know, there was a, a ship called Jesus Christ, you know, 
um, and also those holding castles where enslaved persons were brought before they were forced onto these ships. There was a chapel or, um, um, right at the, on above um, the, the, the dungeons that were beneath. And so right here you have the chapel and right beneath you have women who were being raped, um, people who were uh, about to be forced into um, enslavement um, to, through the door of no return. Um, and all of these things were central, um, all happening at the same time. Um, but that did not have an impact on um, the, the, the urgency to eradicate and to dismantle um, the system of enslavement, even though um, there was um, a difference um, in terms of value systems, um, a difference in terms of agency and how persons viewed um, the institution of slavery. Um, but I also would like to respond to that using the words of um, Ruby Sales, who was also a member um, with SNCC. And Ruby Sales often reminds us that um, it is not the role of my white oppressor um, to um, work to become my ally. Um, in order to be my ally uh, means that you are helping me to live into my full humanity. The most that you can do is to become my comrade. Um, it's my job to be your ally because through my liberation, I'm also liberating you and helping you to live into your full humanity. And the power of, of those words reminds me that it does not matter, and that's the power of this movement, that it does not matter if um, what, is, what is inspiring me to fight for my liberation does not align with yours, um, because I am, I am my own liberator, and I don't need your permission or your cooperation to fight for my freedom. Um, and so when we look at liberation movements for gay rights, liberation movements um, for Native Americans and the like, um, certainly having that solidarity would be critical and instrumental in being able to dismantle. You don't, but, but Audre Lorde reminds us we can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tool. And so that may mean very much so that the work that I do may have to be in a period of isolation um, before we get to a place of um, others sharing in that work towards honoring our full humanity. And that's really, to me, uh, what undergirds the conversation altogether, that we see these indigenous grassroots movements that have been speaking to justice, speaking to our humanity, and speaking to all of these things that we're fighting for long before we reached this pivotal moment. But that does not mean that we were standing still. The work was still being performed um, and one of the things we talked about last right, last week were those hidden places where the work was being done, the brush arbor. You literally had people who were enslaved on plantations um, who had no rights or freedom um, by the government, by the state, but they found these brush arbors to pass on oral history, to practice their religion, but also to strategize and to plot their uprisings. Um, so that they could liberate themselves. So it would be our hope that we would be able to find common ground and work together, but that does not stop the work towards liberation, um, as, as Corey shared, and as Dr. Angela Davis said, um, um, you know, freedom is a constant struggle. Well, Trina, thank you so much for those, for those powerful and inspirational examples. Um, we're, we're now a little bit over time, but, 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 but Corey, uh, we'll, we'll give you the, the last word here before we wrap up. 
Well, the, really, my colleagues, John and Waltrina, have said uh, so many eloquent things that really captures us. Uh, the only thing i like to add is that um, the, the great uh, liberation leader, Milka Cabral, reminded us, uh, claim, you know, tell no lies and claim no easy victories. Um, that would be a good ethic to undertake uh, in this particular uh, conversation, that the challenges that we face are planetary. Uh, that the issues uh, that we must confront are deeply rooted in not only the material foundations of, of politics and the internet and the politics of statecraft, but within our cognitive and theoretical registers as well. The revision of those cognitive registers as well as our material registers for the renewal of democracy is going to take all of us. And the ways in which we can do that best is to understand a reflect, to operationalize rather, a reflexivity uh, in these deliberations that there are no absolute final claims of purity. Uh, there are no absolute claims and positions that are not without their own contradictions, uh, their own contingencies. Uh, but most importantly, if we can begin to try to renew a common life uh, and continue an experiment uh, that hasn't been tried in, in world history of a multiracial, multiethnic, pluralist democracy that's deeply uh, egalitarian, uh, then our commitment to that may help guide us as we attempt to draw resources uh, for the renewal of democratic life and planetary existence. Corey, thank you so much. Um, as is very clear, there, there is so much here. This has been such a rich, rich discussion. So it, it's not surprising that we've run a few minutes over. We could go on and on. and We would love to, dearly love to continue um, hearing and learning from all of you. And we're all greatly looking forward to the continuation of this discussion. Um, before wrapping up, I wanna remind our audience today that today's session has been recorded and the recording will be made available uh, subsequently uh, through the Religion and Public Life Program at Harvard Divinity School. Um, and so finally, on behalf of RPL at Harvard Divinity School and the Shar School of Policy and Government, we wanna thank our speakers today, Waltrina Middleton, Corey Walker, John Hartley for sharing their deep insight um, and, and profound experience with us. Um, Su Susie, great as always to work with you and to partner with HDS. Um, and we're looking forward to continuing the journey. Everyone with us today, you all take care and we look forward to seeing you again at another HDL, HDS event. Take care everyone, goodbye. Thanks everybody. Sponsor, Religion and Public Life. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.